Welcome to episode three of Sentinel of Liberty, a Captain America podcast. I'm Grant Richter, and I'll be your host as we revisit the exploits of the star-spangled Avenger himself. This episode's adventure comes from Captain America number 249 from September of 1980, written and co-plotted by Roger Stern and John Byrne with pencils by John Byrne, inks by Joe Rubenstein, letters by Jim Novak, colors by Ed Sharon, and edited by Jim Salakrup. So grab your Captain America decoder ring and let's jump into action. The cover depicts Captain America fighting a plethora of androids under the control of the machine smith, including robotic replicas of the Thing, Magneto, and Spider-Man. The cover blurb reads, Cap smashes through. The issue opens with Captain America on a New York City rooftop in the death grip of Dragon Man, his shield far beyond his reach. A small flying golden sphere, a technological creation of the maniacal machine smith, hovers around Dragon Man's head, emitting a subsonic frequency that is driving the android creature into a murderous rage. Desperate, Cap literally throws the gauntlet, taking off his leather glove and throwing it into Dragon Man's eye. Once Dragon Man releases him, Cap grabs his shield and smashes the floating orb to bits. With its childlike mind clear of the orb's agitating influence, Dragon Man remembers that it was Machine Smith who inflicted the irritant upon it and sets out with a vengeance toward Machine Smith's hideout. Cap is in hot pursuit across the rooftops, and as Dragon Man begins to pull out ahead of him, the star-spangled Avenger uses a nearby clothesline to lasso the creature's foot and allows himself to be pulled along. Dozens of miles away, they come to a landing at a farm, where Dragon Man smashes his way into a barn and stalks into the hidden bunker beneath, and from there tears his way through a wall to the Machine Smith's robotics lab. Initially surprised, Machine Smith quickly recovers and deploys a trio of drone spheres that incapacitate the behemoth with over a million volts of electricity. Captain America hurls his shield into the lab, destroying the drones in quick succession, then charges into the chamber, encountering Machine Smith for the first time. When Cap grabs the front of the malevolent mastermind's jumpsuit, demanding answers, Machine Smith's head promptly falls off, revealing him to have been a robot as well. While Machine Smith's head taunts him, another Machine Smith appears, whole and intact, from the next room, seconds before Cap is attacked by an army of partially assembled androids, including incomplete duplicates of the things Spider-Man and Magneto. Machine Smith makes a break for it amid the turmoil, but Cap makes short work of the android armada and gives chase. Once caught, this Machine Smith claims that he once went by the costumed identity of Mr. Fear and nearly died in battle against Daredevil, though his robotic minions brought him back from the brink of death. Just then, Machine Smith's body goes lifeless as yet another Machine Smith appears and attacks Captain America with flying robotic hands. As Cap battles the malevolent mitts, the Machine Smith exposits that, following his fatal fight with Daredevil, his robot minions preserved his consciousness in the form of a complex computer program. Inhabiting an android body, the former Mr. Fear built a small criminal empire providing robotic henchmen for various underworld figures. 
Cap finally reaches Machine Smith's newest body, this one too collapses, only to be replaced by a dozen more that all attack him as one. When he notices that the doppelgangers seem to be trying to keep him away from a particular bank of computers, Cap breaks away and smashes it. The robotic duplicates collapse, and the true Machine Smith reveals himself as a disembodied consciousness trapped within the computer. Machine Smith explains that, able to only control his robots remotely, and to never have had a physical body of his own, he had grown to hate his life, but fail-safes and his program's consciousness prevented him from ending it. The entire plot with the Strucker android and Dragon Man had been a ruse to lure Cap to his lair and trick the Avenger into killing him. As the demolished computer fails and the artificial consciousness fades away, Captain America laments the loss of life, even one as twisted and tortured as machine smiths. Next issue, Captain America for President? Okay, that was a pretty good issue. I have to admit though, the first time I read through this, I was a little disappointed in the ending, specifically with Machine Man's motivations. Not that it's necessarily a bad motivation in and of itself. Tricking Captain America into killing you is pretty diabolical. But it kind of conflicts with the message that we're getting from the previous two issues. In two issues ago, the one with Baron Strucker, it comes across like Machine Man is just using Cap to test his robots. And then in the last issue, the one with Dragon Man, it actually looks like Machine Smith is trying to kill Captain America, which I tied the two together with Machine Man's motivation maybe being, haha, now I have Dragon Man, and if my robot that I've taken can kill Captain America, I'll be unstoppable. But then we get to this one, and we find out that the whole thing was just a ruse to trick Cap into coming to Machine Smith's lair to smash his computer because Machine Smith's programming won't let him do it himself. And so I thought at first maybe that Stern and Byrne had plotted themselves into a corner they didn't know how to get out of, that maybe they just didn't have a clear motivation in mind for Machine Smith and they put this together at the last second so they can move on to the next thing. But then I was doing some, you know, I finished my synopsis, I was just writing up my synopsis and I was doing some other reading and I was reading the Gruenwald run from around 1990 and there's a scene where Machine Smith, who at this point is working for the Red Skull, is pretty much trying to make out with a deactivated Nazi sleeper robot. And I'm like, oh yeah, Machine Man's crazy. He doesn't need a really solid motivation. So then I thought, okay, so it makes sense for him to want to try to trick Captain America into killing him. But at the same time, since he is bitter about pretty much dying in a fight with Daredevil and he sees Captain America along the same kind of power level because most bad guys don't know about Daredevil's enhanced senses and his radar sense and all that. He just, you know, Daredevil's an athletic noble hero and Captain America's an athletic noble hero. Like, well, if I can get this guy to kill me, great. If I end up killing him, that's a bonus. So that started to kind of come together after giving it a little thought. And maybe I'm reading into things, I don't know, but I figure, hey, it's Roger Stern. He's one of my favorite writers from the 80s. He deserves a little credit. The other thing that didn't quite work for me was the scene with the glove. So let me paint the picture in a little more detail. So we have 
dragon man who's like 10, 11 feet tall, and he's got both hands around Cap's midsection. He's squeezing his ribs and his internal organs and all that. And Cap has his arms free, and he's a few feet off the ground, and his shield is out of reach, and there's nothing else for him to grab. So, again, it kind of feels like they plotted themselves into a corner on this one. They didn't quite know how to get out of it. And it's neat that, you know, Cap is thinking on his feet. But if you have this, like, 10-foot robot that's pretty indestructible, the idea of throwing a leather glove in its eye, uh, if it had been done in such a way where with his childlike mentality, Dragon Man had been distracted or startled and that caused him to drop Captain America, that would work better for me. But the way that they did it is that it actually hurt him. And that is stretching, you know, the boundaries of imagination, you know, take, you know, take for granted you have a super soldier fighting a 10 foot dragon robot. But Again, I wonder if it's a Marvel method thing where Stern had said, okay, Cap throws his glove at Dragon Man's eye and then gave it to Burn, and Burn drew it to where Dragon Man acted like it hurt him. And so then Stern had to turn around and script it to make that make sense. I don't know. Um, but I don't mean to come across negative with this one. It is actually a pretty fun issue. Um, I'm liking Machine Smith more and more. Like I said, I'm reading a lot of the uh, kind of the middle of Gruenwald's run, right around 1990, right now, where Machine Smith is a member of the Skeleton Crew, which is a really fun trope for me. Um, it's got you know, Machine Smith, it's got Crossbones, it's got Mother Knight, it's got this guy called The Voice, who I'll talk about at another time. Um, and of course, the art is just absolutely beautiful. And the trope of this character who's been converted to energy that can jump from one body to another, it kind of reminds me of Swamp Thing, which is pretty cool. So in all, it is a pretty fun issue. I just did have to do some mental gymnastics to kind of come to grips with a couple things. Okay, now that the issue is done, that takes us on to our Man Out of Time segment. And as I've mentioned, Man Out of Time is where I'm going to be doing overviews of arcs and runs of Captain America related material that I'm just not going to have a chance to get to issue by issue anytime in the next maybe year or so on the show. And last issue, instead of covering a specific arc or run, I talked about, I did an overview of the 80s and the tail end of the Bronze Age and what I think of as the Dark or Grim Age and how it affected Captain America. This issue, I'm going to talk about how the 90s affected Captain America. I tend to think of the early half of the 90s as the Chromium Age. This was the age of the gimmick of you know the specialty cover or replacing a character with one that was more edgy or drastically altering a character to make them more edgy. And... Even though Captain America, I think, is really cool, he's just not an edgy character. And Mark Gruenwald wrote Captain America all through the first half of the 90s. And 
he tried his best to stick to what he thought was his vision of Captain America as a noble character who was valid, even though he wasn't edgy. And it could be argued that perhaps Gruenwald stayed on the book a little too long. It could also be argued that Marvel paired him with artists that maybe after Ron Lim left the book, uh, weren't the best fit for the title. And while I don't think anything that Gruenwald and his artists were putting out at the time was anything worse than what was coming out over in the X-Men books, it wasn't what Marvel wanted to promote it, so it often got sidelined and it got treated like a joke, unfortunately. By contrast, the second half of the 90s was a pushback against some of the excess of the early 90s. And it was largely an exploration of how traditional characters were still valid in a superhero world. And I personally believe that a lot of it started with Mark Wade's Kingdom Come, which was a refutation of the violent extreme characters of the early 90s. Um, like the kind that were created by Marvel, especially Cable, and by the Image founders. And I feel that the Heroes Return titles that Marvel did after Heroes Reborn were largely responsible for carrying this through, with Marvel anyway. I think with DC it was Grant Morrison's JLA. But among Marvel's Heroes Return titles, I unsurprisingly liked Captain America the best, which again was Mark Wade, which continued his run that he started in 1995 that ended with Heroes Reborn. It picked up again in Heroes Return and his run starting with Ron Garney, Ron Garney, excuse me, on art and progressing to Andy Kubert on art is really, in my opinion, one of the best examples of how a traditional noble character can be not only valid, but also dynamic and exciting. Okay, this takes us on to our listener feedback section, which I'm calling the Captain America Hotline. I put out a tweet a few days ago asking you guys to write in and tell me who your favorite Captain America villain is and why. One of the first people to respond was my buddy Herman Lowe on his Into the Weird Twitter account, at Into Weird. And he said, I really want to say Baron Blood, but I would have to pick Kriegerfrau. She's so ridiculously over the top that I'd be betraying the spirit of Into the Weird if I didn't choose her. A super strong Nazi dominatrix is the total antithesis of Cap. This is a really good answer. Uh, Kriegerfrau is an interesting character. Her name roughly translates to Warrior Woman, which is how she's more commonly known in the comics, though there was an issue of, I think it was Namor in the early 90s, where someone pointed out that Krieger Frau would probably more accurately translate to Warrior Wife, and Krieger Dama would probably be the more accurate translation of Warrior Woman. But as you can probably guess from the alliteration of her name, she is an, uh, an homage to Wonder Woman. Um, There's also a Superman and Aquaman and Batman uh, homage in the Evaders, uh, Masterman, Ooman, and as Herman pointed out, Baron Blood. And I think that's really funny because these characters all appeared in Roy Thomas's 1970s World War II comic. And then in the late 1980s, when he was writing Young All-Stars, 
another Justice League homage group, Axis America, appeared with Ubermensch, uh, a Valkyrie character whose name I can't remember. Um, the Great Horned Owl, which was the Batman homage, and Seawolf, which was the Aquaman homage. So that's, I think it's really funny that Roy did that. And I'm also glad that Herman mentioned Baron Blood because he's one of my favorite Captain America villains because I love the trope of the non-magical hero fighting the supernatural villain. By the way, if you guys haven't listened to Herman's show, Into the Weird, I would highly recommend it. Right now, it's Herman and our friend Billy running the show, and they talk about um, some of the more counterculture comics of Marvel from the 1970s, and I hear that there's another guy on the show who's not too bad either. Matthew Birdsley wrote in and asked, does U.S. agent count? And, you know, my right brain wants to say yeah, but my left brain says that canonically he's more of an antagonist and a reluctant ally. But this is a really good question that deserves a lot more discussion. But let me put a pin in it for now and circle back around to it in a little bit. Slingword Scott, who has been a longtime supporter of my various online endeavors, wrote and said, Why not Zemo or the Skull? Honestly, there are too many stories where Cap simply doesn't defeat them, only stops them temporarily. While the precept that liberty must constantly be protected resonates, it being one individual time and again makes Cap look ineffectual. Much better for Cap to decisively defeat the bad guys. I specify no explicit Nazi connections because I want Nazis shown to be crap and they shouldn't have anything cool at all. The Red Skull is a great villain, but I'm increasingly uncomfortable with his continued reappearance. The more writers lean in to re representing how foul a Nazi supervillain really would be, the less I can enjoy a story with him, but it is disingenuous to not recognize his evil. It was easiest to enjoy the skull when everyone understood Nazis are disgusting and evil. Nowadays, with folks who hold those beliefs being emboldened, it is tough to read. That's a very good point, Scott. For sheer fun, though, give me the, give me Batrock or a Serpent Society, Donnie Brook. Oh, and I will add that my favorite stories seem to involve Cap facing the less savory aspects of patriotism slash America, Englehart's '50s Cap and Secret Empire slash Nomad sagas, Kirby's Mad Bomb story, the Grunewald Captain storyline, etc. Spencer's Secret Empire was an unsuccessful try. Those are all really excellent points, and a lot of you wrote in pretty much backing up everything that Scott said, so let me touch on those individually as we go through them. So Scott does a really good job of delineating between what I think of as fun Captain America bad guys and satisfying Captain America bad guys. So let's start with the fun ones first. Uh, let's talk Tigra wrote in and said, there's only one correct answer, answer Batroc the Leaper, but she spelled it out phonetically, Batroc Zilipeo, the guy who can kick bat kick the bat in the face. And so she has this clip from JLA versus Avengers with Batroc kicking Batman. And then she has this picture. Uh, it says, and if you disagree, then and it has a little picture of Batroc saying, oh, no, 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 which is really funny. Um, and one other person also agreed on Batroc. And that was our friend Talkin' Ben Grimm. He said, Batroc, I love how unlike most villains, he's utterly the underdog against Cap. Not He's not even 
one of the more ruthless since he has a code of honor and Cap's always been willing to fight dirty when it's all on the line, but he just keeps trying. Batroc is really such a fun villain, and he's probably one of the few, uh, I want to say, like, not master criminal level villains that can give Cap a run for his money physically. Um, and what's ironic about him, you know, he's a Stan and Jack creation from the 60s, and I've got to say, if it weren't for later writers that had an affection for him and to flesh the character out, he probably would have fallen by the wayside as a mort. But he's developed really well. And I like the fact that you know, even though he's a villain, he's not straight up evil. Uh, like Talking Ben said, he's got a code of honor. He's got a line that he won't cross. And there's been you know, multiple times uh, throughout the years where if the person he's working for crosses a line or if a person he's partnered with crosses a line, then Batroc will turn and actually help Cap to uh, either just to help Cap uh, out of a sense of respect for Captain America's fighting ability or just because he doesn't want something straight up diabolical to happen. You know, it's all about the paycheck for Batroc. Moving a little ways up our sliding scale of evil, Liquid Awesome said, I'm going with the Serpent Society with Viper. And he specified the female Viper, a.k.a. Madam Hydra. Now, whereas Batroc and the Serpent Society are both mercenaries, Batroc is usually either a thief or he's just the hired muscle. And the Serpent Society is more than willing to be assassins. One of their first big gigs was killing Modoc with... Uh, Death Adder and Cottonmouth actually doing the killing blows. And later on, you'll see that Cottonmouth was more than willing to try to bite Captain America's head completely off. So they are definitely more ruthless than Batroc, but they are still kind of fun. I like the all the different snake-themed costumed identities, especially the earlier ones. But when they team up with Viper... Later in Gruenwald's run, during the arc where John Walker replaced Steve Rogers as Captain America, um, there's a plot that they get involved in, and I honestly don't remember all the details because it's been a long time since I read it. But basically, it's Viper trying to turn everyone in America into snake people, starting with Ronald Reagan. And that's what I like about Viper. She's straight up evil. She wants to kill everyone because she's a total nihilist. But her planes are usually kind of cartoonishly evil. In fact, the very first issue of Captain America I ever had was in the early 80s, is where she had set up a secret base in this kind of Midwestern Americana town, and her plan was to release three hot air balloons that were filled with snakes that had been infected with the bubonic plague, and the snakes were going to bite people and give everyone the bubonic plague. I'm like, well, why not just weaponize the bubonic plague? So she is... She's a lot of fun, and in fact, the story that introduces her in the 60s is really the only Silver Age Captain America story that I really enjoy. And of course, part of that is the Jim Stranko artwork, but yeah, I like Viper as well. For the next notch up on our evilometer, Billy D, the aforementioned Billy D, the, also the host of the Magazines and Monsters podcast, seconded Scott's mention of Baron Helmet Zemo. Now, Zemo is a really interesting character because he's not quite as fun as, like, Batroc or the Serpent Society. 
but he's also not as diabolical as like the Red Skull, even though he does have ties to the Nazis through his dad Heinrich. But in my opinion, Zemo is a much more competent villain than the Red Skull is. The Skull is pure emotion. He's pure focused hate. Now, maybe even unfocused hate because he hates everyone. And if he wants something, he's going to go forth. He's going to destroy until he either gets what he wants or until he's stopped. And if Zemo comes at you, he's going to destroy you through logic and through strategy. And it's when he loses that focus that he lets his emotions take control of him that his plans fall apart. Another interesting aspect of Zemo is that he doesn't necessarily want world domination. He wants personal power because it's easier to get what you want when people are afraid of you. He wants to mess with Captain America as much as possible, but most importantly, he wants to prove that he's better than everyone else. In Zemo's opinion, his family is better than every other family on the planet. He's the last remaining member of his family. Therefore, he wants to prove that he's better than everyone on the planet. And on our final stop on this episode's part of this discussion, Ed Moore at Teal Productions brought us back around to the Red Skull. He said, I think Johan was intended to be the antithesis of everything about Captain America until Spencer got a hold of Cap anyway. So that actually brings up two really good points, but let's talk about the skull first. Now, I actually like it best when the skull is shown to be an absolute monster, not just a supervillain, but just the worst human being on the planet, because apparently people need to be reminded that Nazis are bad. And if you think Nazis are cool, you're wrong. It's like, Mike Gillis said on a pretty recent episode of Radio vs. the Martians, if you're the bad guy in a Captain America comic, you're a bad guy. And there are two examples that I think encapsulate just the skull at his worst the most. The first is from Volume 1 of Uncanny Avengers by Rick Remender and John Cassidy from, I think it was 2011. And this is actually a clone of the Red Skull, who was frozen or put in suspended animation, whatever, before the end of World War II. So this is completely undiluted Nazi Red Skull. He was never a Silver Age or a Bronze Age or an early modern age supervillain. In his mind, he's still a Nazi agent. So he immediately sets out to start reshaping the world in a Nazi kind of way. And the first thing he does is target mutants. And he actually says, if you want to control a population, you take what they're afraid of, you make them hate that thing, and then you set yourself up as the person who can make that thing go away forever. And the other Nazi-like thing he does is use propaganda. He actually has a minion named Honest John the Living Propaganda who spreads what the skull is selling through, through people kind of psychically through television broadcasts, which is... The whole run is really brilliant, and yes, it's on the nose, it is, it's a blunt object of a story, but the skull is a blunt object of a supervillain, or he should be, so I think it was really an outstanding execution of what makes the skull absolutely ir um, just irredeemable. 
The other one is from issue 14 of Captain America Volume 3 from 1999. And in this, at an earlier story arc, the Red Skull had gotten a hold of a cosmic cube. He was about to use it to reshape the world. And Cap cuts the skull's hand off with his shield, which causes the cube to blow up. And it puts the skull into this kind of personal psychic hell. And the whole issue is done in black and white. And the only color in the whole thing is the skull's head. This bright red. It's either supposed to be his mask or it's supposed to be his actual head and face following the, the Grunewald issues. And in his in this world, it's one where Captain America has brought liberal democracy to post-World War II Germany. And the skull himself is a lonely... Um, busboy, shoe sign boy, whatever, at a hotel like he was when Hitler discovered him. And the country has become almost a parody of Western excess. And the country is filled with people of color and people of many different religions. And the skull sees these varying cultures as a personal attack on himself. And it's just a really fundamentally terrifying look inside the mind of people who just fear and hate those who are different. And I think that is just the defining, the defining aspect of the Red Skull as a character of Nazis, of racists, of homophobic people, xenophobic people, just anything like that. And I think that's what people need to be reminded of is that that kind of thing is awful. If Captain America is the ultimate good guy, then sentiments like that make up the ultimate bad guy. Ed's comment about the Nick Spencer run, which includes the Hydra Cap series and the Secret Empire miniseries, brings us back around to what Scott was saying about patriotism gone sideways, about toxic nationalism, which I think is actually Cap's uh, biggest enemy. And it's a really important topic and it's a really big topic. So, in fact, I'm going to split this discussion and I want to handle that part of it in our next episode. So, in about a week, I'll be back. Uh, we're going to be talking about Captain America number 250 from 1980. We're going to do an overview of the beginning of the Mark Wade Ron Garney run of Captain America from 1995. And we're gonna talk about things like US Agent and Hydra Cap and the Mad Bomb story and the 1950s Captain America. So until next time, let me leave you with the immortal words of the captain himself. When the mob and the press and the whole world tells you to move, your job is to plant yourself like a tree beside the river of truth and you tell the whole world, no, you move. <laughs>